Welcome back to the audio companion commentary to the study on the Mikra e Kodesh Holy Convocation series. Uh, specifically, we're studying in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I'm the author, uh, Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. If you're following along on the written notes, this is Part E, starting with paragraph number 11, Yeshua's Bloody Atonement Sacrifice and Leviticus 17.11. Again, as has been previously mentioned, much of the information is a repeat from my commentary to Parashat Achorimot. And so with that, let's go ahead and continue with the audio commentary that has already been pre-recorded for Parashat Achorimot, starting with the paragraph that says, In an Attempt. Let's pick up the discussion there, okay? In an attempt to explain this atonement matter further, we Bible students need to understand the plans and the purposes of Hashem as expressed in the whole of the Torah. When I say that, I mean both covenants, if I could use terms that, Christian, that Christianity is familiar with, both Old and New Testament, even though I don't espouse to those terms. From our vantage point, and using 20th century hindsight, actually 21st century hindsight, it makes perfect sense to send the Messiah to atone for our uh, sinful nature, right? Let me just change it 21st century hindsight. There we go. It seems to make perfect sense to, the, to send the Messiah, right? To atone for our nature. Um, I mean, why even send the animals in the first place? After all, if God left things in the hands of mankind, if you think about it now, this is just a hypothetical question, a hypothetical situation. Let's say that God said to man, okay, fine, you want to atone for your sins? Give it your best shot. What would happen then? I think you know what the answer would be. Each individual man would have to atone for his own personal sins, and each man, consequently, would have to die for such a payment. See how that works? Because I sin, I, R-A-L, I sin. So I shouldn't really expect substitutionary atonement if I think that I should be able to handle it, right? Let's say I show up to God's uh, tabernacle and say, okay, God, I'm going to atone for my sins. God says, fine, atone for it. What's your sacrifice? If I say, well, since I sinned, I'm the one who has to die, well, guess what happens? That doesn't work, because I'm not a perfect sacrifice, number one. And number two, even if I were able to sacrifice myself and offer myself up to God, it'd be the last time that I was able to, to, to uh, present such an offering, because then I'd be dead. So it doesn't make any sense. We should understand that Yeshua is the only man who could have been offered by God to provide atonement for us, because only Yeshua was a sinless offering. What does the Torah say in Romans chapter 5, verse 12? Quote, Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered into the world. Of course, that's Adam. And through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race, inasmuch as everyone sinned. End quote. Okay? So we see that the Torah teaches that mankind cannot bring an atonement of himself or cannot bring an offering, a korban, to God of himself, because it's not a perfect sacrifice. We cannot rely on ourselves as the sacrifice. We must rely on God's system of substitutionary atonement. With the entrance of sin came the punishment for sin. And what was that? Death. So we see that Hashem is perfectly righteous when he says that the wages for our sin is death. Why? Because every man does deserve to die. Because every man sins. But here, of course, is where the mercy of Hashem comes in. God our Father has lovingly provided a means by which mankind can redeem himself. Okay? Now, this speaks 
of the purposes of sending the Torah. Far from sending the Torah to be a millstone around our neck, the Torah actually provides the answer to the human dilemma. The Torah is a good thing. Because contained within the pages of the Torah are the details concerning our atonement. And in the period of the Tanakh, the sacrificial system was that means, okay? Even though it only served to cleanse the flesh, it was authentically God's solution. Do you understand what I'm going with this? All right? We oftentimes in the 21st century, especially within Christian circles, we look down our nose at the Torah and at the Tanakh and we say, gosh, what a flawed system. Boy, I'm so glad that I have Jesus. And you know what? That's a wrong position. That's a wrong mindset. The animals were authentically God's solution. No Jew living in that time period was able to circumvent this system and expect to remain officially within the community. It's not going to happen. You could not approach the tabernacle or the temple without bringing some sort of animal sacrifice. Uh, that is to say, without bringing some sort of korban. Um, I'm not saying that all the sacrifices were animals. Obviously, the the um, the ashla, uh, I'm sorry, the mincha was a grain offering. But to answer the question posed above, if we take Hashem seriously, then we will accept His provision, God's provision, no matter what means, no matter how inadequate that provision may seem to us. If God is the authority, then we line up with his rulings, with his injunctions, with his commandments. And this is our first lesson in Torah logic, okay? God makes the rules. We don't make the rules ourselves, okay? Now, having established that hermeneutic principle that God is the one in control, this brings us to the current situation facing every man, woman, and child, Jew or Gentile, living today. And here's the question. Since the sacrificial system used in the Tanakh did not bring the participant to the goal of attaining positional righteousness, what was his means of attaining positional righteousness then? And what is his means of gaining such atonement today? Did you understand my question? In other words, how were the Old Testament saints saved back then and both today, basically, is the, answer, uh, the question I'm asking. Now, <clears throat> again, as we've already observed from the anti-missionaries position above, the modern rabbis today would have us believe that, that the three ways by which to appease Hashem are repentance, prayer, and righteous acts. And I've effectively put them in my commentary as three Hebrew words that begin with the letter T, or TZ, and they are teshuva, or Teshuva, which is repentance. Teshuva, you've heard it uh, pronounced that way. Teshuva, which is repentance. Tefillah, which is prayer. And Tzedakah, which is righteous acts. Okay, repentance, prayer, and and charity. Or repentance, prayer, and righteous deeds, which is what charity is. Okay, These three T's are the, the, uh, the ways that modern Judaism teaches that we gain Hashem's approval. Okay, again... Keep in mind that this is the anti-missionary position which rejects the notion that Jesus is the atonement for sin both then and for today. Okay, To be sure, all of these principles that I just mentioned, repentance, prayer, and righteous acts, they are found in the teachings of the Torah. And, and I'm not trying to um, um, disqualify them, each and every one of them has valid merit. 
I'm not trying to say that these principles are bad. They are actually good principles. Okay? For, I mean, example, for, let's just single out each one of them. God is highly interested in our repentance, is he not? He wants us to turn from sin. So, Teshuvah is important. Number two, he is very supportive of a prayer time, right? Tefillah, prayer. We are commanded to pray. God is interested in our prayer. Oh, yes. And number three, he is enthusiastic of our righteous acts done in his name. God, in fact, saves us so that we can do righteous acts. So repentance, prayer, and righteous acts, teshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, are all valid biblical concepts. But what does the Torah portion say that we're reading today? Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Here we are, our chair passage. Quote, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, given it the blood, to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is the blood that makes atonement because of life. It does not say it is the prayer that makes atonement. It does not say it is the repentance that makes atonement. It does not say it is the righteous acts that make atonement. What does it say? It says it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life in the blood. End quote. Again, this, this, this is beginning to answer the question. Again, the anti-missionaries above said that, well, you know, Ariel, this passage isn't really talking about atonement. It's talking about um, kosher foods. You know, don't eat blood because blood makes atonement. That is true. That's a side issue. It, the passage really is dealing with, aton- with um, kosher, that which we can and cannot ingest. How, and blood is forbidden. To, to ingest. We shall not ingest bud, blood. This, by the way, is true for both the native-born, the Ezrach, as well as the stranger, the Ger. All right? In other words, it's true for both Jew and Gentile. However, the fact that God does mention that the blood makes atonement, it is an important factor of the Pasuk, the verse, and we should not ignore it. So with that, let's turn to a section entitled, There's Power in the Blood. You recall the old familiar Baptist tune? There's power in the blood, power in the blood, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember all the words, but I just remember that tune. Let's move on into chapter 17, where we're going to deal with this chair passage. Leviticus 17.11 is a chair passage. Remember now, a chair passage is the proverbial fork in the road where one group goes one way and one group goes the other way. Now, um, this single verse of the Torah has caused no small disagreement between Christian missionaries and anti-missionaries, of course. The anti-missionaries are usually the Jewish people in this sense. I'm not, again, let me say this up front. I'm not trying to say that the Christians are right and the Jews are wrong. I'm not trying to say that the Jews are right and that the Christians are wrong. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is get us to understand the um, sharp differences between the two opinions and help us to come to a proper understanding of what the Torah is teaching us. And if the Christians have a little bit of it right and a little bit of it wrong, then let's take the good and leave the bad. Conversely, if the Jewish position, the anti-missionaries have a little bit of it right and a little bit of it wrong, let's chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Um, no one is completely in error and no one is completely in truth. We need to understand that everyone has a little bit of the truth and a little bit of error. So it's our job as students to um, sharpen ourselves as we um, uh, uh, embrace the truth and avoid the error, no matter who whose position it is. All right. The missionaries, the Christians, use this verse, verse uh, chapter 17, verse 11, as a launching point by which to propagate the necessity of the atonement of Yeshua, the Messiah, for the permanent forgiveness of sins. Okay? 
The rabbis teach that according to further insight, usually provided for them by the Talmud, that this verse is not exclusively addressing the issue of sin atonement, um, which is something I just mentioned earlier, right? Um, Again, since we're studying the arguments and responses of both camps, we should not be ashamed to provide an authoritative answer. Okay? We should not throw our hands up in the air and say, well, you know, maybe the Christians are right. Well, maybe the Jews are right. Well, you know, who am I to say which position is wrong? Guess what? If you're a student of the Bible, if you've got the Spirit living inside of you and you can study the Word of God, then don't be ashamed if the Spirit of God is giving you the right answer. First of all, the rabbis have a somewhat valid point to make. All right, before we completely discount them. Because I know what some of you are thinking. You think, well, gosh, Ariel, obviously the Christian position is right because they've got the Christ. We've got the Messiah. We've got the fullness of the Torah. We've got the Spirit. Aren't you, in fact, Ariel, hinting at the fact that the missionary position is correct? Well, not entirely. Again, first of all, the rabbis have a somewhat valid point to make. And that is this. The Torah does address the issue of atonement in other sections. Besides this Leviticus passage. Likewise, Hashem did use the blood of animals and other types of sacrificial requirements where sin is not the primary issues. Again, go to Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 and you'll see the five types of korbanot listed there. Um, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Okay, And of those five types, um, expiatory, uh, expiatory um, um, sacrifices is not the key focus in every one of them. To be sure, the first three are, not, are non-expiatory. So the rabbis have some valid points to make there. Okay, Jesus did not just do away with all the sacrifices, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus' atonement did not just point... Uh, Jesus' sacrificial atonement is not typified by every sacrifice, is what I'm trying to say. The Ola, the Mincha, and the Shlamim are non-expiatory. Therefore, we could effectively bring those back if we had a temple... And they would be, they would have no direct bearing on Jesus' sacrifice for us, in, in a sense. Um, Hashem did use the blood of animals and other types of sacrificial requirements where sin is not the primary issue. But what the rabbis seem to misunderstand, in my opinion, is that the above-quoted verse was not intended to confuse the average reader. You know, when you read the verse, um, the rabbis kind of start twisting the passage and saying, Well, you know, does it say this? Does it say that? Citing the rules of standard grammatical historical exegesis, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of the, relative, of the related passages and axiomatic fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. All right. In other words... Did the average unlearned reader living in the time period of the Tanakh understand what Hashem was asking of him? a good question, right? Of course he did. If he did not, I imagine we would have read about the difference in interpretation somewhere else in the Torah, but we don't have anything there. But our verse here in Leviticus contains little or no ambiguity. The immediate recipients of the context of chapter 17, if we just want to do our structural analysis, are as given. We have um, the commandments given to Moshe in verse 1, and then to Aharon and his sons in verse 1, to Am Yisrael in verse 1, and finally someone in the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you in verses 8 and 10. So the chapter even leaves off addressing anyone in verse 15. Okay, that's chapter 17 that I'm looking at, by the way. Now, were all of these individuals learned people? Were they all rabbis? Were they all scholars? Did they study at the most brilliant theological schools of their day? 
Was Hashem secretly cloaking this important information and mystery only to be understood by the future rabbis and Kabbalists, I might add, and Torah teachers of the people of Israel? Nonsense, of course not. All those questions are rhetorical. I am not reluctant to place the blame on either over-examination or blatant stubbornness to the rule Kakodesh. And because of this, we sometimes miss the simple explanation that the Torah is trying to teach us. In other words, to use modern language, we miss the forest for the trees. Another rather obvious cause, I should say, for the disagreement here is the fact that most non-Messianic rabbis, most anti-missionaries, don't consider the apostolic scriptures, the New Covenant scriptures, the New Testament, they don't consider that section to be authoritative, and therefore, they usually ignore its teaching. You know what I have to say to them? Woe unto those unfaithful teachers during the coming day of reckoning, during the day of Yom Haden. God has given us the apostolic scriptures as an authority so that we can understand what the Torah is trying to teach us. In fact, here's a good hermeneutic principle I want to pass along to you students listening to my podcast right now, okay? This doesn't show up in the written commentary. This is just for you guys listening. If you read a passage in the apostolic scriptures and you have a question about it, turn back to the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and see if that passage is alluded to somewhere in the Tanakh. Because you're going to find further illumination from the Apostolic Scriptures if you will use the Tanakh as the basis of the inspiration of the Apostolic Scriptures. Now watch this. It works in reverse as well. If you're reading through the Torah or the Tanakh, the Apostolic, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Old Testament, and you find a passage that doesn't seem to make sense, use a very good concordance and see if you can find if this passage is repeated in the Apostolic Scriptures. And if it is, then you're going to find your first and best resource for explaining such a Torah passage. In other words, let me put it this way. If you're reading the New Testament and you're confused, search the Old Testament for illumination. And conversely, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're confused, search the New Testament for illumination. You cannot discount either covenant. We cannot throw out either um, testament. We must allow both of them to work together. Okay. Let's go on. Let's go back to our commentary. The Torah, as I explain in my commentary, as expounded upon by the Messiah and his first century followers, is authoritative concerning the issue. So it is here that we will settle the issue as to whether or not sin can be atoned for either by repentance, by prayer and charity alone, or whether sin can be atoned for by the blood. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his own love for us in that the Messiah died on our behalf while we were still sinners. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered righteous, and I might add positionally righteous, by means of his bloody sacrificial death, how much more will we be delivered through him from the anger of God's judgment? End quote. Did you see it there? Right there. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered positionally righteous by means of his bloody sacrificial death, it is through the blood of Yeshua that we attain positional righteousness. Of course, this is nothing new to the missionaries. But what is new to the missionaries is that the animals themselves did not provide some sort of temporal positional 
righteousness. That's where I challenge the missionary position. Of course, where I challenge the anti-missionary position is that it is Yeshua's blood that provides such atonement rather than repentance, charity, and prayer. Yeshua has now become the means by which all men must satisfy the righteous atoning requirement of the Holy One. Now, this type of atonement does not merely provide a cleansing of the flesh and a wiping clean of the sanctuary like the animals did. Again, the animal system is not bad. It's a good thing. But Yeshua's atonement is better. Our sins are not merely atoned for spanning the space of another year only to be revisited this same time a year later at Yom Kippur by a priest who will eventually taste death himself. No, this type of atonement, Yeshua's priestly atonement, is a permanent atonement. What does the Torah say at Jeremiah 31, verse 34? Quote, No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, No Adonai, for we are... I'm sorry, for all will know me from the least of them to the greatest because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. End quote. What is the passage saying? Well, consider that this passage was written closer to the time period when King David lived. All right, There was no Yeshua yet. So righteous King David recognized the mercy of a God who wiped clean the transgressor's sins. In fact, keeping with this um, example of King David, he recognized the mercy of a God who covers, quote-unquote, and forgives, quote-unquote, the transgressor's sin using the substitute blood of animals. Look at the passage um, that we're going to... In fact, let's see. Which passage do I want to pull out? I I want to pull out Psalm 32... Let's see, how far do I want to go into this passage? Give me one second. Get out my Torah here. See how far we want to go into this passage. Psalm 32 is a great passage. Um, Yeah. Psalm 32. Let me read part of this, okay? Just maybe the first five pesukim. This is David Stern's version, okay? By David a Maskil. How blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, those whose sin is covered. How blessed those to whom Adonai imputes no guilt, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. The sap in me dried up as in a summer drought. When I acknowledged my sin to you, when I stopped concealing my guilt and said, I will confess my offenses to Adonai, then you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Okay, so here we have um, Psalm 32. And uh, in this particular passage, we see that David speaks about covering his sin, and it speaks about forgiving his sin, right? Uh, in, this, in this passage, the Hebrew word for cover, as in verse 1, is actually kasa. It literally means to conceal or to hide. And the same word shows up in Pasuk 5 when it says, when I stopped concealing my guilt, when I stopped covering it. Okay. However, the Hebrew word forgive in Pasuk 1, where it says, how blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, the word forgiven there, the Hebrew word, the root word is actually nasa, which literally means to carry or to bear or to take. How blessed are those whose offenses are taken. Now again, this word, 
Kasa shows up near the bottom of the same pas, uh, the same um, psalm in verse five, where it says, when when David says, "After I confessed my offenses, God, and I then you you forgave the guilt of my sin. You nasa, you carried it, you bore it, you took it." Are you beginning to see the messianic implications of how David understood the? Animals doing their part in covering or concealing or hiding, while the um, it 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 actually has this view towards uh, the way Yeshua's atonement um, has now become the means by which we must all uh, satisfy the righteous requirement from Hashem. Our sins are both covered and forgiven. That's what David says. How blessed are those! This is, of course, typical poetic parallelism where we have. Uh, one clo- one stanza saying one thing, and then the the next stanza saying something else. And r- in reality, it's not a competition. It's not either or. It's both. For instance, if we read a psalm where the psalmist might say, "The Lord is good," in the first stanza, and then the next stanza might say, "The Lord is great." Well, which one is he? Is he good or is he great? Well, that's the wrong way to approach the psalm. He's both good and great. It's not either or, it's both and. We have David doing the same thing here in Psalm 32. How blessed are those, look at Pasuk 1, how blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, those whose sin is covered. Well, which one is it? Was his sin covered, which is kasa, or was it forgiven, which is nasa? Were they simply hidden, or were they carried away? You see my point? It's both. David understood that the animals played their important part in covering, but that ultimately... As his faith matured and matriculated uh, towards uh, faith in the promised one to come, that it was Yeshua who would actually bear his sin. So, um, chapter 32 of the book of Psalms is a very, very good place for us to see these two features of the Korbanoth sacrifices working together. Interestingly, again, in the first few Pesukim, the words cover and forgive function as synonyms in poetic parallelism. This is where we see a good example of the validity and the necessity of the system used in the days of the Tanakh in which, of course, David lived. Now, so before we become, we Christians, before we become so quick to look down at God's temporary solution, you know, when we say the animal sacrifices, let's look at what the sacrificial system of those days could accomplish. Again, turning to Psalm 32, and this time bringing in Psalm 51, we see the heart of a man who genuinely experienced the forgiveness of Hashem. Again, Psalm 32, 1, um, David states that the man whose sin is covered is blessed. And in verse 5, he clearly states that his acknowledgement of his sin brought about true forgiveness from Hashem because of unmerited favor. You know, it's because of unmerited favor that this man could rejoice in the mercies of Hashem. Look at verses 10 and 11 of that same psalm. God has shown and demonstrated to David that his faithfulness extends not only to his transgressions today, you know, which the animal sacrifices are going to somewhat offer um, some relief from, but David, by the Spirit of God and by the mercy of God, had been given a glimpse of the future descendant of David who would come and and wipe his sins clean forever. And that's why David could rejoice. In fact, let's keep reading and see how that um, in Psalm 51, where David had uh, committed the sin with Bathsheba, how this also bears an important part in, 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 in revealing to David the nature and the scope of God's forgiveness. 
in uh, Psalm 51, uh, which was written by David, but this time written after he had committed the gross sin with uh, Bathsheba, the mother of Melech Shlomo, King Solomon. In this passage, in Psalm 51, we again see a man who, knowing the true goal of the Torah, which was salvation of his eternal soul through the promised one to come, sought the genuine forgiveness of his maker. Let's read the passage. Let's read Psalm 51, verses 16 through 19, okay? Verses 16 through 19 of the psalm, well, I'm not going to read the psalm, but let me just summarize them. They explain to us readers that a heart given to genuine trusting faithfulness, the very same heart required of us today, I might add, is what rendered the sacrifices of the Tanakh effective. Simply performing the rituals perfunctorily did not please our heavenly Abba. You can read verse 16 and 17. Rather, and we must understand this, we must put this truth down into our hearts, okay? It was a heart broken in genuine submission to the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, that moved Hashem to forgiveness. This same heart gave the sacrifices validity. Read verse 19 of that passage, okay? Bringing the animals to God's temple and then walking away without any faith or love for God or without any um, desire to repent didn't do anything. It's what I call a waste of a good animal. God can see the heart. And if you bring the animal without any repentance, God does not obligate it to, to forgive you. Conversely, the animals in and of themselves did not afford any type of forgiveness um, without, um, without the validity of Yeshua's sacrifice uh, to which they pointed. So you have to ask yourself the question, since we know that Jesus was the goal of the sacrifices, did David as of yet know the name of his future descendant, Yeshua, when he brought the sacrifices to the tabernacle? Did he know Jesus' name? Well, the text is silent. We have no evidence to support that he explicitly knew the name Yeshua. What we, what, what, what we can be sure of is this. David did know that through Moshe, the Torah promised that one day a prophet, capital P, would arise and that the people were to obey him. You can read that in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Surely David had access to these passages. What David also knew was that a um, these passages, um, well, let me put it this way. This passage, coupled with, with the whole bulk of the sacrificial system, surely gave David a glimpse of the intended function and nature of the Torah, the goal, and that these antitypes, these animals, pointed towards the day when the corporate sins of all Israel would be forgiven, never again to be brought to Hashem's mind. This, of course, is the day spoken about in Yirmiyahu 31-34, which reads, quote, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more, end quote. That's from the King James Version. Now we read this passage in Jeremiah where it says, I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin. And sometimes we missionaries forget. This is a New Testament feature, people. Read Hebrews 8, verse 12, which is actually quoting the Jeremiah passage. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The writer of Hebrews brings this passage from the Tanakh into his letter to um, show that uh, this is God's intent. This is God's intention. According to the book of Hebrews, the sacrifices of David's day could cleanse the flesh. That's what it says explicitly. We're going to read it here in a moment. But they could not cleanse the conscience. That is to say, I understand Hebrews to be teaching that the 
that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the mind of an individual. Okay? By comparison, the blood of bulls and goats focused on the external. This is a good thing. Good versus better, not bad versus good. Okay? Let's get our terminology straight. The animals could cleanse the flesh. That's good. Yeshua's blood cleansed the conscience. That's better. It's not that the animals cleanse the flesh. That's bad. And yet Yeshua cleanses the, the conscience. That's good. That's not the way it works. It's good versus better, not bad versus good. Let's read the quote from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 from the KJV. Quote, For the, if the blood of bulls and goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? End quote. Notice that the writer to Hebrews does um, confess, or he does agree with my position. I really should say I agree with his position, obviously, right? Uh, since he wrote first. Um, the position being stated is that the sprinkling and the blood of the bulls and goats sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. That's exactly what I've been saying all along throughout my commentary. Blood of animals applies to the flesh. Moreover, the writer of Hebrews makes his point explicit in this additional passage in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, this time out of the New International Version, quote, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. I might add that the word only there is not in the Greek, if I'm correct. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly endlessly, repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. End quote. Now again, we, the only way to understand this passage correctly is to know that the sacrifices being spoken of in the animal sense refer to um, cleansing of the outward, whereas the sacrifice of Yeshua serves to cleanse the, the uh, conscience of the individual. So when it says in that last clause... But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It means of the flesh. And then it says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it means in the spirit or in the inner. Okay, Animals apply to the outward. Yeshua applies towards the inward. Therefore, the blood of bulls and goats were not designed to cleanse the conscience. So when it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it does not mean all sins. It means sins of the conscience. I would paraphrase it by saying, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins of the conscience, because they are not designed to take away sins of the conscience. Only the blood of Yeshua was designed to cleanse the conscience. Okay, With that understanding, we can read the verse and understand that Yeshua and his sacrifices, I'm sorry, the Yeshua and the sacrifices do not contradict one another, they complement one another. Please don't misunderstand. The Old Testament saints were not quote-unquote saved by a different system than the one in which we rely on, okay? That is another mistaken notion that is engineered in the standard missionary camps, a.k.a. Christianity. Not across the board. I know not all Christians listening to my podcast would say, well, R.E.L., I don't believe that. Many Christians listening to my podcast would, would agree with my position that the Old Testament saints were not saved by a different system than the one in which we rely on. But it's unfortunate that many Christians still believe this position. All right? Somehow they think that the animals offered a salvation. If they were, okay, let's just entertain that notion for a moment. 
if they were saved by the animals themselves, and then only to have Jesus save us the way now, the way he does now, then this would suggest that there were really two separate ways under righteousness, a theory which we know cannot be true, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That means no one, both past, present, or future. The animals simply did not save people, okay? Tim Haig's conclusion is fitting for our study. Quote, The older idea that atonement was only a temporary fix for sins for those who lived in the time before the coming of our Messiah must be abandoned. The idea of atonement as portrayed in the scriptures encompasses both a temporal aspect as well as an eternal one. End quote. That's again from Tim Haig's commentary, The Meaning of Kafar at TorahResource.com. To be sure, Yeshua, again, states explicitly that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through him. We must allow that verse to be applied to every person who has ever lived on the face of planet Earth. Let me just state it this way in a kind of a concluding fashion. The sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real-life forgiveness, but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the mortal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice to which the animals pointed could purify both flesh and soul. Thus you could say that the blood of the animals moved, as it were, the sin from the body of the person to the mercy seat, the altar, where God would in fact grant genuine atonement or washing of sins of the flesh because of the reality of the heavenly altar. When I use the word moved there, it's a little peculiar. What I mean is that the the altar seems to have this kind of, um, uh, how should I put it, a, uh, um, a way in which to attract blood. The blood is splashed on the altar. By design, God says splash the blood on the altar, and if you dash it anywhere else, then you're in trouble. They were not allowed to um, ingest blood, obviously, and they were not allowed to offer the blood sacrificially at any other spot except the place where God designated, namely the altar where the priests officiated. So we could say that the altar was designed to receive the blood. Okay, And so when the um, person brought their korban to the priest or to the altar, then they were symbolically saying, here with this animal and with this blood, my sin goes from me to the altar. That's what I mean by the term, the, um, the blood of the animals moved, as it were, the sin. The, 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 um, the, I'm talking about substitutionary atonement when I use the word moved. It moves from us to the altar where God's um, atonement was granted. Alternately, we could say the blood of the animals washed or wiped clean the holy place where God manifestly dwelt. The objective faith of the individual bringing the korban, uh, the korban still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. Yet, as he brought his animal, his obedience was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. It's not faith versus obedience. It's faith and obedience. If you had faith in Yeshua, then you obediently brought the animals. It's not that since I have faith, now I don't have to bring the animals. That's not the way it worked, okay? Your faith in God is vindicated by your obedience to God. It's that simple. What is more, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual was always dependent upon a circumcised heart, exactly as it is today. 
Is everyone understanding what I'm trying to teach here? It's so vitally important. Look at my commentary, the uh, part that's in the middle there that's bolded. I believe it's in blue if you have it um, in color version. Let me just state it this way, okay? In summary, referring to the sacrifices and the way they relate to Yeshua. In summary then, the sacrificial system was not designed to bring the participant to the goal. Namely, a purged conscience and salvation of the individual. The sacrificial system was not designed to accomplish this fact in and of itself. It led the individual to this conclusion. That's true. The Torah pointed toward the Messiah. Or as uh, Paul would put it, it was the goal at which the, at the, at which the Torah aimed. The Messiah is the goal at which the Torah aimed. Sacrifices could never bring an individual to the goal in and of themselves, but they were designed to lead the individual to that conclusion as he performed these uh, rituals year after year, eventually the Spirit of God working on his conscience, working within his own mind and within his own heart, would help um, him make the right decision when it came to placing his trust in the promise word to come. So, sacrifices were for dealing with sin in the flesh, especially as the individual approached the Holy Sancta. Only genuine faith in the promised one could move God's heart to reckon to one's account righteousness, as was done for Abraham. In other words, only genuine faith in the word of the Lord to come, which in their day it was the prophet that Moshe spoke about. Spoke about. We look backwards now, we know, of course, that this prophet that they're referring to as Yeshua. But only faith in this promise could cause God to move salvifically on behalf of the individual bringing the sacrifices year after year. The Torah itself, that's going to sound really, really weird to those of you who are pro-Torah, okay? So just don't get too upset after I say it. But the Torah was weak. That's right. It was weak in that it could not bring to the goal of salvation the heart of an individual. As as disappointing as that may sound to Jewish ears, the Torah was never designed to save an individual. The Torah was only designed to point the individual toward the Messiah. Once he reached the conclusion, reached the goal, I should say, and placed his faith in Yeshua, or the Messiah to come, then the Torah continued in his life as the blueprint for godly living. Oh yes, the Torah was not simply discarded. But I know this to be the case because Paul says this explicitly in the book of Galatians where he talks about the boy tutor, the Paida Gogas, being led to the teacher of righteousness. And the boy is you and I, the man, the individual who is un, um, unregenerate. And the boy tutor is the Torah, the Paida Gogas. He's the one that takes us by the hand and the, le the teacher of righteousness is the Messiah. So the Torah is weak. It cannot do um, something that it was never designed to do. It's very strong when it's used in the right way, but it's very weak when it's wielded incorrectly. And that's the whole point of um, combating legalism in all of its forms. Only the Spirit's supernatural work, excuse me, only the Spirit's supernatural work could and always will be able to do this very thing, lead the individual to the goal of a place in their faith in Yeshua. People, I want you to understand this, okay? There is only one path to positional righteousness. There is only one way to attain lasting salvation. There's only one way, and his name is Yeshua.
Thus we see as we draw this section of my commentary part E to a close, we see that the covenant spoken about by the prophet Yahu Jeremiah, when he talks about that I will write their, my laws on their inward parts, it's surely a superior system, yes? Yes, when because it's the difference between life and death that Moshe talked about choosing way back in Parashat Nitzavim. Choose life or choose death. Choosing life means choosing Messiah. Choosing life means choosing to allow God's Spirit to write His laws on the inward parts of your heart, or just on the ins- inside of a man. The 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 uh, the the opposite choice or the the um. The only other option is a dead person, a person who's not regenerate, and the person who's not regenerate doesn't have the Torah of God written on his heart. That's what a circumcised heart means. Try as you might, if you do not let the Spirit of God soften your heart, so you can write this, the words of God on your heart, then you will be dead. You may live, you may live a, a polished life on the outside, but to put it in Yeshua's words, you know, the, the, the tomb is white on the outside, but inside it will be full of dead men's bones. Because... Only the Spirit of God can regenerate a man from the inside out. So this is a superior system. Okay, It's not to denigrate the Torah system. It's simply that the Torah itself is not designed to, in and of itself, change the heart of an individual. Only the Spirit of God working in concert with the Word of God can do that very function. So when Hashem says that He will remember our sins no more, as opposed to what? Remembering them year after year, since we are not, not yet regenerated? See the difference? When he says that he will remember our sins no more, well, that's something to rejoice about. That's right. There is grace in the Torah, but there's extended grace once we place our faith in Yeshua because God remembers our sins year after year if we don't yet place our faith in Yeshua. It's because we have not been born again. But once we place our faith in Yeshua, then the new covenant, as it were, the Chadashah spoken about here in Jeremiah, springs into reality on an individual basis. The down payment is being made within our lives. And therefore, when God says, I will remember their sins no more, that's what is happening within our own lives. In Messiah, our sins are pushed back as far as the east is from the west, which we know, of course, is a a Hebrew idiom, meaning they ain't coming back, right? Why would anyone want to attempt to revert back to the former system if it were possible? In other words, why would someone want to undo the salvific work of Yeshua? You know, unfortunately, today, many of my brothers, according to the flesh, the Jewish people, are doing something similar to this, rejecting the superiority of allowing God to write his Torah on your heart in favor of merely, and I use the word merely for emphasis, merely allowing God to... um, write his Torah on our mind. But God commands us to write it on our hearts. That's, of course, found within the Shema. Again, when a person rejects Yeshua HaMashiach as the final atonement for their sin, the one who was promised about in the Tanakh, then they are really rejecting the one who sent the Messiah in the first place. In other words, to reject Yeshua is to reject Hashem. And Yeshua stated that Whoever honors the Father honors me, and whoever dishonors the Father dishonors me, and vice versa. If you dishonor me, you dishonor the Father, and and if you honor me, you honor the Father. Why? Because we are an Echad, Yeshua stated. This is where the corporate blindness of my people lies today. Won't you continue to pray for Israel? The second important aspect of sending Yeshua at the appointed time has to do with order. Hashem has a perfect plan for everything, right? According to the purpose of God, 
Sin seems to have had to run its course until the ideal time for seeing the Messiah in the world came. We asked the question earlier, why didn't God just blink his eyes and make the sin go away? Well, this is why. Yeshua demonstrated his obedience to the Father by surrendering his life as a sacrifice only when the time set by his Father was perfect. God couldn't just blink his eyes and make the sin go away. Yeshua was the pre-chosen sacrifice for our sins. Yeshua is the plan. There is no other plan. There's no other way to deal with sin. Yeshua is the only way. So God cannot simply just blink his eyes and make sin go away. Else Yeshua's sacrifice was worthless. He died for nothing. God said that there's only one way to erase the stain of sin from the heart of a man. And it is through the sacrifice that his son would walk into one day. God knew this in advance. That's why the Messiah was chosen in advance. And that's why he had to come at the exact moment set by his Father. Not sooner, not later. We must accept this biblical truth and live by it. Perhaps, maybe in a way, you could say that, you know, this is hypothetical. If Messiah had provided himself for atonement at a much earlier time in Israel's history, then perhaps maybe because of community dynamics, I imagine, that maybe the majority of Am Yisrael would have accepted him, but the majority of the surrounding Gentile nations would have missed out. God had a perfect plan for sending a son at the moment in history when Israel would be ripe for opening the mysterious doors to the Gentiles to join the, the commonwealth of Israel. And so Messiah came, he sent his spirit, and then the Gentiles were invited in. And it all worked perfectly. If we upset any part of that, then um, even in speculation, I suppose, then it just doesn't work. God's plans are perfect. Again, sending Messiah earlier or, or later is all speculative, right? But if you read Romans chapter 11, specifically verse 25 sometime, you'll notice that it seems like the Torah is kind of hinting at this very aspect. Okay, I think I've covered this notion of... Um, of, uh, part 11 in our commentary which was uh, labeled Yeshua's Bloody Atonement Sacrifice and Leviticus 17.11 fairly well. Let's go ahead and call this Part C. It was a lengthier part, almost an hour long. And we'll be poised now to move on to Part F. A, B, C, D, E, F. I, I warned you this commentary would be long. There's probably at least maybe at least part F, and then maybe we'll draw it to the close, okay? So stay tuned for part F to the audio commentary to Holy Convocation series, Mikra Ekodesh Yom Kippur.